Welcome to KG Education's Cultivating Connection podcast, enlightening conversations and guided meditations to inspire and connect educators. I'm Leah Oback. And I'm Devin Caldwell. We're the Kenton Girls, and together we make up KG Education. Through interviews and self-care practices, we'll share our passion for professional learning, wellness, and community to cultivate connections for educators everywhere. We believe that teachers are stronger and more impactful educators when they're connected and cared for, and it's our mission to support you with teaching, technology integration, and teacher wellness. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and our website at kgeducation.ca. Connect with us. We'd love to hear from you. And now for the most recent episode of our podcast. Welcome to another episode of KG Education's podcast, Cultivating Connection. My name is Devin Caldwell, and I'm joined by my partner, Leah Oback, as well as a very special guest today. We're really excited to welcome Dr. Joe Stouffer from Brandon University to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here today, Joe. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's great to make connections with the field and also the new teachers that you're working with. We're really excited for this conversation because literacy, I think literacy is always a hot topic. I don't think there's really ever been a time in education where people weren't concerned about the best way to teach children how to read and just keeping current on what um, new approaches are out there and new research supports those approaches. So I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Um, Let's just dive right in. So first of all, why don't you tell our listeners just a little bit about you? Um, what kind of work do you do? Um, what research are you working on right now? Yes, uh, so uh, I'm an assistant professor at Brandon University. I work in the Department of Curriculum and Pedagogy, but I come to university with a lot of experience in literacy. I was a classroom teacher in service Manitoba at the beginning of my career. I started out teaching in grade seven and grade eight, uh, and then moved and spent most of my classroom time uh, in grade three, grade two, three, multi-age classrooms. And literacy has always been a passion of mine, particularly when I had the opportunity to train as a reading recovery teacher in the school. And that kind of shifted the trajectory of my career in that uh, it led to an opportunity for me to become a teacher leader in reading recovery. So that was very intensive training and gave me the opportunity to work with literacy teachers like myself that really wanted to help kids, particularly the struggling kids, learn to read in schools across southwestern Manitoba. And then beyond that, when I started my PhD, I I took up some consulting work as well, first as a literacy instructional coach in Rolling River School Division for a few years. Uh, I did some work with Pearson Canada. So I worked very uh, closely with Faunus and Pinnell and their materials, their assessments, their interventions, their classroom Mm -hmm. materials, uh, as well as having my own consulting business as well. And then finally, I've I've landed here at Brandon University. So currently I I have a real interest in how we're preparing teachers to teach literacy. And and my work with schools uh, most recently has focused on reading assessments. So particularly running records, uh, in, in light of what you mentioned, this idea of we've always had these long-standing debates about what's the right way to teach reading. And I think in those debates, there's being stones being hurled from kind of both sides of the fence about this is right and this is wrong. And I'm always very careful about extremism in, in our approaches to literacy education. And 
being careful that we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater and mm-hmm. in efforts to improve what we're doing, that we're not giving up things that we already do that are working quite well and looking at ways, how can we take the best uh, of both worlds? So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to be here today and talk about you know, what's brewing in, in literacy uh, instruction across Canada and how we can support teachers in their work with children. We're really lucky to have you with your wealth of experience and knowledge coming in to share with our listeners. So we'd like to first just start by talking about what you believe are some of the components of a quality literacy program in our K-12 schools. What are those really essential aspects do you think that we need for our learners to be successful? Sure. And 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 one, you know, one term that I think has kind of come in and out of vogue and is under a lot of scrutiny right now is this term we used to use balanced literacy. And it's almost being turned into a dirty word in in some of the recent things in the media that, you know, it's not including all the components that it should. But but in my mind, balance never meant, you know, 50, you know, 10 minutes of this and 10 minutes of that and equal times and all things. It was that conscious decision making on the on the part of an expert teacher in terms of meeting kids needs. So, you know, what what are the things that teachers are thinking about as part of a quality literacy program and to me quality means responsive so how is how is the teacher responding to all of the students needs that they have in their classroom so that's going to take kind of four pillars four foundational things one being organization so how has the teacher organized their instructional day so that we can get all of those necessary components of literacy so that you have that flexibility to take the time that's needed according to the needs of students so that you have time to work with your whole class, so that you have time to work with small groups, and most importantly, you have time to work one-on-one with kids who who need that special attention or need the the teacher's expert coaching. So the next pillar we talk about then too is the instruction that, that follows. So how have you set up your day? How have you organized it? But what is the teacher actually saying and doing and what are the activities? that the students are engaging in that are building strong reading skills, strong writing skills and developing their oral language because all of those things are connected. And, and I think that's, you know, going back to the organizational piece, when we think about reading and writing and oral language, yes, we're setting time aside across our school day for those things, but we're also recognizing how they're interconnected. So, you know, I, I always joke that I, I love a deal. So, for me, teaching literacy is a great, it's a three for one deal. Because when you're teaching writing, you're simultaneously teaching reading and oral language as well. So the reciprocity that exists among our language, reading and writing uh, should be capitalized. So when, you, when you're teaching kids about letters and sound associations, for example, that's a skill they use in writing to help them spell words, but it also helps them solve words in reading. And as they're solving those words and reading them in text, they start to think about the meanings of those words. So we're building vocabulary as well. So, you know, there, there's all this um, bonus learning that, that's happening all around us in, in an effective literacy classroom. So, and then alongside those, those two first components of, of organization and instruction, what's the assessment that's happening in a classroom? And, you know, and that takes a lot of forms. Those are the, you know, the formal things, the quizzes and and uh, the big provincial assessments and the things that we must do. But, but more importantly, it's the teacher walking around the room and the informal assessing that they're doing that's really steering their instruction. 
So what is the teacher noticing? Like one, one piece of advice that I give to new teachers and my students here at the university and the undergraduate program all the time is your job is to notice. And, and that's one of the hardest things I think we have to learn when we're, we're coming into this profession is what am, I, what am I looking at? What am I looking for? And what's it telling me to do as a teacher? So that, that recognizing what's right in front of your eyes or, or what are you hearing as, as you're working with children as they're reading and writing? Where is, it, where is it pointing the compass, right? In terms of where do you go next? And then finally, the last component, I think in an effective responsive classroom are the materials we use. So you know, what kinds of books, what kind of texts do we have for children? Are we meeting their interests? Are, are children seeing themselves within the text that we provide? Are we being inclusive? So are there, are there people that look like me in, in the books? Are there families like me in those books? But also, is it giving me a window, not only a mirror, but is it giving me a window into other people's lives? You know, particularly if we're working in a smaller community where there may not be necessarily the type of diversity we see in large urban centers, how, how do we expose children to, to bigger pictures and start conversations? And certainly we, we have to be really mindful of our Indigenous students and their experiences and how we're honoring truth and reconciliation and, and bringing different ways of learning and seeing the world and being within the world to the table with all our students. So, you know, four, four things sounds pretty simple, but when you think about all the decisions and the choices and the facets and the dimensions of all that, it does get to be very complex. And, and, and I agree uh, with what Devin said at the beginning, like literacy is so interesting, but I also think it's one of the most challenging things that, that we do. And so one thing I, I want to make very clear to, to anyone listening to this is literacy teaching and learning is always a work in progress. Like I've been in this business 30 years and, and every time I read or write with a new student, they teach me something. And, and every group of students, every class you have every year is going to make you a stronger teacher because they're showing you the diversity and, and they're showing you the possibilities that exist as we teach children to read and write. Literacy really is a fascinating area of study as well as a fascinating area to teach in. Um, but it is also really challenging. Like, I think, you know, just you hit the nail on the head when you said, like, we're always learning. We never totally have it figured out. And occasionally in my career, I've got to the point where I felt like, yeah, kind of getting this figured out. And then something happens, a new student crosses my path, and I am like right back to the beginning trying to figure out, you know, what will work for the student. So it's, you never get tired of it because it's always presenting endless challenges. You said so many things in that response that I would really like to unpack with you, but I know we have a limited amount of time. Something that I really loved was how you talked about the most important thing a teacher really can do in their classroom is to notice. So to observe, to notice, and then use that information to make good instructional decisions that will guide their students forward. And I love that, but I think there's also lots of pressure on teachers to quantify things all the time and to, you know, link that to a certain score or a level. And um, I think sometimes that gets in the way of what are maybe, you know, the, the best teaching practices out there. So I just, I really think that's so important too, taking that time to notice and observe and use that to guide your decisions. 
Um, that does lead us into the next thing we wanted to talk about with you. And, and you made a comment about, you know, that throwing the baby out with the bathwater when one new approach comes along. And yeah, what comes to mind for me is science of reading. We're hearing so much about this. We're seeing dramatic instructional changes in classrooms. And can you tell us with this beautiful model of literacy, teaching and learning that you just talked about, how does the science of reading fit into that? Uh, absolutely. And, and, and just for clarity for, for folks, this may be a new term, like what, what is the science of reading? Certainly not a new thing. Like we, we've been talking about the so-called reading war since early 2000s. And, and it's this pendulum swing that we have in education you know, between kind of two big schools of thought about how we should be teaching reading in particular, you know, on, on one side of the fence, we say it, it should be uh, a bottom-up approach, meaning letter sounds and phonics and phonological awareness leading the way, uh, or the decoding side of reading, really, versus more whole language approaches on the other side of the fence that say, no, no, reading is about comprehension and meaning making. So it's really about that holistic uh, treatment of language. That, that should be part of our, you know, or should be steering our reading instruction. So, so my take on, on this whole science of reading notion is, and, and recently what I've written about is this idea of we should be taking up a middle ground stance because yes, there, we have a ton of, of research supporting the, the science of reading movement saying that those essential skills such as phonological awareness, letter sound association, alphabetic knowledge, word recognition, word solving skills. Those are the essential skills of proficient readers. You, you, cannot, you cannot argue contrary to, the, to the, the mountain of research that's, that supports that those decoding skills, you need to be able to decode. My, my way of looking at it is comprehension is the goal of reading, but decoding is the gatekeeper. And mm -hmm. if you can't decode, if you can't figure out what the words are on the page, well, how are you going to comprehend? But we also have a lot of research though too that tells us that essential, those essential skills are not sufficient. Those are not the only thing that successful readers do. Readers have to be able to do much more than decode the words. They do have to move on and comprehend. So for example, we have, we've studied readers that are excellent decoders, that can read a text with a very high degree of accuracy, 99, 100% accuracy. But then when we start to talk to them about what they've read, they have very limited understanding. And, and that's hugely problematic. So if we take up too much extremism in that phonics only and phonics first kind of push that we're seeing from the science of reading community, we have to be careful that we're not misleading kids into thinking that reading is just only about figuring out what the words are. What other type of thinking do readers do? And there's long-standing theoretical models that support this notion. I'm thinking of Scarborough's reading rope, which you know dates back quite a while, which shows kind of the two strands of decoding and comprehending, interweaving from the very start of reading instruction and throughout a person's life. And then even more recently, we have uh, a great model that is very, very steeped in research from, from Duke and Cartwright just last year talking about what are the advances in the science of reading that, that still support this idea of decoding and comprehending being interactive processes and that we need to provide instruction on both fronts. 
So going back to your question, I know I took the, the wrong way around. Where does science of reading fit into this, this excellent classroom, this excellent literacy classroom? It's the foundation. So absolutely, we have research that says we should be doing about 30 minutes of this decoding work, particularly with beginning readers every day. Now I'm gonna put an asterisk beside that. That does not mean 30 minutes in a row because those of you who have worked with grade ones know what's going to happen if you, you start trying the same activity for 30 minutes in a row. So again, part of that organization in your classroom is thinking about how can I spread these phonological awareness activities and phonics, learning about letter sound associations and word solving and building up banks of words? How can I spread those activities throughout the day? And how can I take them on in fun ways? And most importantly, how can I make them come to life by embedding them in the reading and writing that we're doing in our classroom? So they're just not standalone. So they're not just worksheet activities that we're doing like, okay, it's phonics time and the kids aren't making the connection to how does this help me read and write? Thank you so much for giving your perspective on this. I know it's been like a lot for many of us as educators to kind of um, bring in, how can we use these science of reading approaches? How does this fit into what I was already doing, what I already know about um, teaching reading, what I already know about kids' reading skills. And I think you make a great point that it's just one piece of our, our instruction. And then, like you said, the pillar of organization is gonna play in here. So how is our time organized so that we can address those fundamental skills and also give kids lots of other rich literacy experiences um, that, that we often are really good at already doing in our teaching practice. So something that we're seeing and hearing is that teachers are maybe struggling with where their guided reading books fit. Now that decodable texts have become popular, maybe classes, uh, classrooms or schools are acquiring these decodable texts, where do they fit into our reading instruction? What do we do with all those other wonderful books that we had prior to this trend? How do those mesh together to have a rich classroom library so that we are supporting our readers? Oh, that's such a great question. And, and you know what, it's, it's ironic because we were just chatting about this in class today here at Brown University with my, with my first year students. So, and again, I think it goes back to that comment about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So, and it it's, seems a little ironic to me in that, you know, some folks are saying, oh, we should throw out those guided reading, those kind of quality literature texts that we've collected over years and years and years, or, or the level texts that we have in our guided reading libraries and replace them. But what they're, they're suggesting we replace them with is actually just another set of level texts that are just leveled in a different way. They're, they're leveled according to the sequence of phonics instruction. So, so you're really just kind of you know, swapping out you know, Granny Smith apples with delicious apples. You know, it's one type of level text versus another. And, and again, I, I think both types have a place in our classroom, yes. We, we have a strong body of research that shows us that phonics instruction is more potent when it's presented sequentially. In addition, we can make it even more potent when we connect it to reading and writing activities. So in that, play, in that case, yes, decodable text can help with that. There's a, there's a great opportunity for kids to apply the phonics learning that they've taken up into a practice of reading. The downside of that again, and here's where we get into extremism, 
what are we giving up if that's all we're doing with our kids? Because I would argue reading a text like the fat cat sat on the mat. Yes, very decodable text, but is that going to foster a love of reading? Is that going to make kids fall in love with stories and books? Is that going to address the inclusion and equity that I mentioned earlier? So there's limits to what those texts can do, but, but certainly they have their place in part of that organization and in part of the materials that we're selecting for our kids. But we can't just assume that one size is going to fit all kids. And that, and that I think is my biggest concern with the science of reading movement is that it's really pushing forward an agenda that, that assumes one size is going to fit all. That, that all kids are going to need the same sequence of phonics instruction, whether they know it already or not, or that all kids should read the same texts in the same sequence, whether they want to read those texts or not. So there, there is quite a bit of danger in that. Because again, going back to the research, when we look at effective reading interventions, we can see that when we try those one size approaches, they're, they're not as effective as adaptive programming or programming that takes up the needs of individual students. And in fact, in some cases, taking those one size fits all approaches has negative effects on some kids learning. So we have to be really cautious. I think that's a really good point you make, Joe, as well, because, and it's not just applicable to decodable text and science of reading, in my opinion, because just as we would not expect a child to follow the exact same sequence of decodable texts, we also wouldn't expect them to follow the exact same sequence of um, our former collection of Fontes and Pinnell leveled readers or PM benchmark books or whatever we were using before. Yes, they're a great guideline, but you know, maybe my grade one kid who's reading at a level 14 picks up a 15 or 16 at, that really interests them and tackles it no problem. Yes. Uh, or they might have a level 10 book that they absolutely love and practice their fluency with. And I think we just need to remember that. We know that as educators from our practice and watching children. But I think sometimes when new things come along, we, we forget that um, in, our, in our efforts to do our very best, right? I think we're always well-intentioned as teachers and trying new things as a part of that. But I think that's a really um, timely reminder as we consider new approaches that, that we do have to remember that, that children need different things from us and it's okay to adapt to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember early in my career when I first started teaching guided reading, I was so excited about matching text to readers and because I'd read the research that said, if we're working with kids within their instructional level where it's, it's not too hard and it's not too easy, that's where we're gonna make the fastest progress. But I was over controlling, like I was making too many choices for my kids and limiting the, the amount of text that they had access to. And I, I really did a big disservice to, to those early groups of kids because now I've learned like, like you say, it, it's a level is just a level, but, but in my experience, what I've learned over and over again, that if a student has background knowledge or a high interest in a topic, the level is meaningless. They will, they will read you know, way, way beyond our expectations when, when they have motivation and when they have background knowledge. So you know, I don't like to put limits on kids or cordon off sections of the classroom library according to reading level anymore, because like I say, it, it just doesn't foster great reading practice for my kids.
I think a lot of what you're describing really comes down to teachers' professional judgment and their ability to observe and make those decisions in the classroom and figure out for themselves how to integrate new information or trending information like science of reading to best support their learners, um, which I think definitely really um, puts you in such a great position as someone who's involved in, in teacher preparation. And sometimes I think educators maybe just don't have either the autonomy to make those decisions themselves when it comes to their literacy programming or the confidence either. Um, something I'm hearing a lot about lately is Orton-Gillingham training. And a lot of my colleagues are participating in Orton-Gillingham training and then using those approaches in their classroom. Is that something that you could comment about in this podcast episode? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it fits again under the science of reading uh, umbrella. And what, what I, I appreciate, and I'm not trained myself in Orton-Gillingham, but what I, what I know about the program is that it, it does an excellent job of preparing teachers in, in terms of helping students understand how our spelling system and how our letter sound association system works in English. So for example, how can you predict what, what sound a letter is going to make based on the letters around it or its position in the word or if it's in a closed or open syllable. So it, it is kind of unpacking those kind of gray areas that a lot of students mm. struggle with in learning to decode because we do have a complex spelling system, particularly in English, which, which is very challenging for kids. But again, like turning back to the research, what is the research saying? When, when we look at, at the Orton-Gillingham program and specifically, a recent study just was released saying that it, it didn't really have uh, a, a great effect size on, on students' ability to decode. And in fact, one study showed that it actually had a significantly negative effect on some kids' comprehension because it over-focused them on trying to decode words and using things like nonsense word decoding which you know, doesn't bring in uh, thinking about meaningful context or syntax, for example, to support word solving. And, and it actually puts some kids further behind. So again, what, what's often touted as the silver bullet or the magic solution that's going to wave the magic wand for all readers, nothing's infallible, right? And, and there is no program that, that is going to fit every single student that we're going to encounter. So, so like you said earlier, Devin, it's about teacher autonomy and it's about teacher expertise. And, and so one thing that I would put out very strongly is the idea that programs don't teach kids, teachers teach kids. And so what we have to be thinking about is how are we empowering teachers to, to do a better job? I think that's okay, if a there's wonderful like... <laughs> notion. Yeah, I'm writing this down to make sure yeah, we all get if that there's, message. Yeah. If there's one quote we're pulling from this podcast, that was it. <laughs> Programs don't teach kids, teachers teach kids. So thanks for that, Joe. Yeah, and that's that's my worry with this. You know, when we have the science of reading movement coming forward, it, it's, it's attacking teacher autonomy. And, and a lot of their argument is that teachers aren't doing a good job or teachers aren't effectively teaching phonics or teacher, you know, you hear a lot of criticism of teachers' practice. And, and that's... You know, the furthest thing that I've seen when I go, when I actually go into classrooms and I'm coaching teachers and I'm watching teachers, that's not my experience at all. They're, they're working like crazy and they're, they're doing a lot of amazing things that are meeting the needs of kids in flexible ways. So, you know, it, to me, it seems tragic 
to tie some of these amazing teachers' hands saying, no, no, you know, put down your, your guided reading program that was doing such an amazing job of meeting kids at where they are, you're now going to do a step-by-step -step program. While we're talking about different programs and different components of, of literacy, especially in the early years, where does sight word instruction fit in? Um, what are some strategies for helping children develop a sight word vocabulary? What would be your recommendations to teachers about sight words? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even if we're talking about decoding skills, and I know we tend to get, uh, to, sorry to steal a bad line here, hooked on phonics. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dating myself here. But we do get kind of stuck on that letter, you know, letter sound level and, and talking about, you know, word analysis. But we know that proficient readers rely on an incredibly large bank of immediately recognized words. You know, that's, that's what makes a fluent reader in the long run is how many words do you instantly recognize and how quickly can you retrieve them? So it's building up that bank. So, so what, how does sight words fit into this? It's essential again, it's, it's part of that learning to decode is also learning to recognize words. And, and for most kids, it, it's, a, it's a matter of practice. So, you know, we start out, you know, in the very early days of kindergarten, even developing kids with a few sight words. And we don't have to wait for kids to know a certain number of letters or a certain number of sounds. Kids can start taking on that learning immediately. I, I'm always amazed on even on the very first day of kindergarten. And I know, uh, Devin, you've taught kindergarten for a long time now. You've met lots of kids that have come in on day one and they already recognize their name. Mm -hmm. You know, and so they have us, they, they have that word or they might recognize mom or dad in their site bank already. And they might not be able to tell you what all the letters are in their name, but they know that that printed representation, that's me, that, that's my name. So, so from day one in, in our kindergarten programs, we need to start building up that bank of known words in addition to the work that we're doing with phonological awareness and phonics. So they're growing side by side and then kids are going to start to see those connections running back and forth between them. So, you know, the tips, how do we get kids to accumulate words? They have to encounter them over and over and over again. So, and that's in, what's the easiest way? In the books they read. So we're pointing out, you know, there's that T-H-E, like it's all through all these books that they're reading. And then even more importantly, we're asking kids to write these words. What, what I love about writing is your hands work more slowly than your eyes. So writing slows this process of word analysis down. And as you're writing the T and the H and the E, you're, you're mentally going through a process known as semantic mapping of words. And what that means is you're, you're paying attention to the letters. And as you're saying the word to yourself like the, you're learning to recognize that how are those sounds represented in, the, in that word T-H-E? Because the is not a predictable word to decode. You know, if you tried to sound it out, you'd end up with something very strange like that. So, so why is it so important for them to, to recognize it in writing? It's going to help them say, oh, in this word, the T-H-E actually makes like a, a Z sound rather than the T-H sound. So it's, it's helping that. And we also have studies that show in that semantic process of, of mapping the word, it also helps you attach meaning as you're writing it. So it's also building your vocabulary. 
So again, how do we build kids' sight vocabulary? Not only the you know the fun little flashcards that we have, but it's it's the act of reading and writing. And we're going to find kids as they develop strong word-solving skills, they're going to have self-extending systems. And, and what I mean by that is they start to teach themselves words as they read. So they're reading through, and every time they read, they're they're coming across new words sounding out and go, oh yeah, I guess that's Kari. Oh, that's Carrie. Hmm. Up it goes into their bank. And they only have to sound it out two or three times, and then they don't have to sound it out anymore. They've learned it. Even if the teacher hasn't specifically taught those words. Thank you for sharing that. Because I think it's it's always, um, it feels like there's a lot of components, right? When we break things down into there's reading, there's writing, there's word study, however you want to categorize it. Um, but I love how you bring them together for us, because I think sometimes that's reassuring to us as educators that, like you said, it's, it's a good deal. Literacy is a good deal, because as we're working on one aspect, we're developing kids' skills in another. So as we move forward with this work in progress that is literacy instruction for all of us as educators, whether we're new teachers, middle career, or really seasoned educators, a researcher, a professor, I think we're all, all working on you know, doing our best for children at whatever stage we're at with our literacy instruction, what resources would you suggest that teachers consult? Either print, people that you think that uh, we should connect with, what would you recommend for us to continue our learning and our progress in this area? Oh, wow, Leah, you, you framed that question so beautifully and you, you made me think, because when, when I first heard the question, I was thinking like paper resources. So I'm glad you, met, you, you brought up that point of people. So the best resources we have are our colleagues. Like uh, the, the best professional learning I've ever done across my career has been the chances I've, I've had to go into so many other teachers' classrooms. And you know I've been there in the role of the coach, but I always tell the teachers I'm working with, thank you, because they're teaching me as I'm trying to coach them. You know, and, and it's the little things like I, I'm, I'm such a spy when I go into classroom teacher because I'm looking at what do they have on their walls? How are they talking to their, to their students? What, what do they have that seems to be working really well? you know, how they organize their day, you know, I go back to those, those four pillars of organization, instruction, assessment, materials, like, how are they making sense of all of this? Because, you know, every teacher has, has something that's working. And, and the more we get to work with one another, the more we're going to build on each other's strengths. So, so there's number one, as, as much as possible, get the opportunity to visit another classroom, but also be open to having someone come into your classroom. And I know that's a scary thought because in our business, we're used to people only come in when they're assessing our teaching. And I wish we could make it more commonplace to, to have that open door policy where you know, we're, we're just walking back and forth between classrooms and we're regularly having these conversations about how do you do this and what's working well and what else have you tried? Because, or, or what are you reading, you know, lately? And, and it's within that, that I think we can really, really move teaching forward in a business. So, but, but on the traditional side, so if you want to hear about great resources, one, one that I keep going back to and back to again, because I'm a deal hunter, I love Faunus and Pinnell's Continuum of Literacy Learning, just because it, it's such one-stop shopping and it has very concrete learning outcomes and suggestions across the entire literacy program. 
So it talks about interactive read aloud. It talks about shared reading and performance reading. It talks about writing. It talks about guided reading. So particularly for a new teacher or a new to a grade teacher, when, when you're unclear of you know, what, what kinds of things could students be doing around this age, it's, it's almost like an, an overwhelming resource because there are so many ideas in it, but at least it's, it's a roadmap for teachers. And on the one hand, where I love the philosophy of the renewed Manitoba ELA curriculum framework, where it's challenging many of us in our teaching is there's no longer grade specific learning outcomes. So for new teachers in particular, that's quite daunting because it's, am I doing the right thing? And I think as, as teachers, particularly early career teachers, we're looking for a lot of reassurance and in that we're doing it the right way and that we're serving our kids well. And, and even as mid-career or later career teachers, if you take on a new grade and you suddenly leave your comfort zone, it's, it's difficult to know like what, what, what is the expectation? Where, where is this leading or where are our starting points? So, and how do I decide if, if a student is, you know, quite a bit an outlier from, from the other students around them? Uh, another one that I, I just picked up very recently on the science of reading side, it's, it's a text by Julia B. Lindsay, and it's called Reading Above the Fray. And what I really like about it is it really gives clear examples and clear uh, teaching plans for how we introduce phonics, how we introduce phonological awareness. So very step-by-step, -step, clear directions. The text is steeped in research. So it's completely backed by very sound science. But, but what I really most appreciate about this text is it's very clear about what it is and what it isn't. So it acknowledges that this, this text is only dealing with the decoding aspect of reading. And that reading needs to include more than this, but, but it's certainly a very helpful guide for teachers, particularly if they're faced with this onslaught of, oh, are you doing science of reading? You know, what does that look like in your classroom? I think this will help a lot of teachers put that into practice and understand what, what a science of reading approach will look like and, and how we should be teaching phonics and phonological awareness and word study and word solving. So, so there's a lot of great support there for, for teachers without trying to sell itself as the entire reading program. I found your comment really interesting about the new ELA curriculum. And as someone whose job is supporting the teachers in my building, um, we're just fresh out of report card time. We've had lots of conversations about what does reading at grade level look like? What does, um, you know, a four look like with literacy learning? What does a one look like? And I think it's really tough, especially for new teachers when we don't have those clear guidelines coming from our curriculum. What would be your suggestions for them? Yeah, and that's, and I think we're giving that feedback back to, to Manitoba education as well, that that, that is uh, a tension for sure that, that we're experiencing, particularly when the, the Manitoba Provincial Report Card hasn't adapted to, to match the new curriculum framework. So we're, we're kind of on the one hand on the report card, speaking the language of the old, the previous curriculum. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, we've already implemented a new curriculum and they don't necessarily jive. So, you know, we, we need to have, I think, more conversation between departments <laughs> in Manitoba <laughs> education to clarify that. 
and and I know um, uh, lots of school divisions have already undertaken that work in terms of setting uh, definitions. So what what is a four? What is a three? What is a two and a one? But again, where where I think that's problematic is that not all school divisions have invested equally in, in the amount of professional time that they've given teachers to do that work. And then the other worry I have is, so are we all looking at Manitoba students through the same lens? So, and, and I know equity is, is such an important consideration that we wanna keep at the forefront of our decision-making. So how are we to say then that the decisions that are being made, being made in one school division are gonna be the same lens that's gonna be taken up for example, in the north of Manitoba. So yeah, I wish I, I wish I had the magic answer to that question mm -hmm. because I know a lot of teachers in Manitoba are asking. So what, what does assessment and reporting look like in this new framework? And, and what's steering my, my long-term planning in terms of outcomes? Because we have the age band descriptors, we have the expanded age band descriptors too. But, but again, like drawing on the experience in the room here, I, I know you folks can say with a great deal of certainty, kindergartens are very different students than grade twos. So when we look at the learning that happens with, across that age band from K to two, it's gigantic. Mm -hmm. but, but as a new teacher, you know, how, how are we going to navigate that, that learning that, that we're expecting to occur without some guidance. It, yeah, it's certainly a challenge. I love that our, our new curriculum in Manitoba does give us the, it fits really well with inquiry and project-based learning, which are favorite approaches of mine, um, but then it does leave um, lots of work for us to do in terms of ensuring that students are progressing towards some more specific outcomes that we want to see for them to be successful as well. So on the on the topic of assessment and reporting, specifically to literacy, how would you say teachers can use their formative assessments to plan literacy instruction? As you've said, going around, what are we noticing? How do we use that in our planning of our instruction pillar? And then where do those formal reading assessments fit, such as like our, our running records and our benchmark assessments? All right. Well, let's start, let's start with the first question, you know, how can teachers use formative assessment? I, I'd almost turn that question back and say, how can they not? Because really, if we're, we we're talking about a responsive, effective literacy classroom, and, and again, that comment about programs don't teach kids, it's teachers. So how do teachers know what to teach next? It's because of what they notice and what they're observing in their students, and that's driving the instruction. So, and you I, know, I think it's reassuring for us formative assessment, especially again, early in our career, but all throughout, it can feel daunting like, oh, so I'm supposed to be assessing these kids all the time every day, but we have to remember that it is in our, and, and at all ages, it is in our daily noticing, our observations. It's, it's not always a, a, what feels like a big thing. Uh, and I think we sometimes forget that with our older learners in particular, having taught elementary, middle and high school, I think we sometimes forget the value of those sometimes small things we notice each day just in our interactions with learners. But those do need to be what 
informs assessment, oh, this high school student is lacking an understanding of whatever concept. Let's make sure we get a mini lesson in on that tomorrow. It, it's not just for our youngest learners that that's relevant. So I'm oh, glad you say that. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I, I think you make a really good point. It's the little things that you're noticing. Like to me, formative assessment just means you're getting to know your students. And, and that, that happens throughout the school year. And it never stops because you're, you're, your students are gonna be different learners. Now this time of the school year as we're getting into December, much different than who they were in, in September. So, you know, it's, it's also tracking that, that evolution of their learning. And it doesn't have to be these big sit down formal things like, you know, the big end of unit test or, you know, where we're looking at whole class. We, we have to think about how we're triangulating data or, or as a new curriculum framework puts it, the body of evidence that we're assembling for, for learners. And that includes the conversations and the observations that, that we're making. So, so one of the, the greatest tools I think we have for formative assessment is the conferencing we do with kids. So when they come in there, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, when you're just sitting and reading with a student or looking at their writing, that, that's, there's a wealth of information. I think the, the biggest challenge, again, for, for teachers is, well, what am I looking for, right? What are the signposts in those conferences that I, that I need to be making note of? And then also having a system, again, then this goes back to that organization again, having a system for yourself as a teacher where you're writing those observations down and then making a note to yourself, so what? You know, so what am I going to do with this observation? Do I see other students in the room that have a similar need? Would that, that inform me, okay, I need to pull a small group together or is it just one student? Or even if I'm just doing like the, you know, at the end of a lesson, a quick check-in with my students, thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs up, you know, how do you feel about the learning that we just did? You know, and, and, and just that quick check-in with kids or having a parking lot, like what questions do you have? Pop, pop them up on a sticky note for me and then I can gauge, you know, before, you know, and I, and I think that's where teachers sometimes get themselves into trouble is because they're not doing that ongoing check-in, they're surprised by low results on a unit test or, you know, at the, the kind of the summative tasks that we do at the end of learning. It's like, oh, where did it go wrong? Well, it went wrong about two weeks ago, but you didn't notice. So, and you also asked about the, the formal assessments that we do, for example, such as, as the benchmarks. And, and yeah, I, you know, some, some practices were mandated to do, and you know, they're, they're coming from up above that the division is saying that we have to do beginning year and, and end of year data. And, and that type of data is informative for us as a school system because it tells us how we're doing, you know, and it gives us those larger scale pictures. But we also have to recognize the limitations of those formal assessments and that they're snapshot. So the, the benchmark assessment, for example, that we do in the fall, we're, we're getting a lot of information in, in you know, a 30 to 40 minute period that it takes to administer a benchmark assessment with a student, but it's also limited in that you might've only heard the student read two or three texts. So yes, it, it's giving you a guesstimate of a good starting point for that reader in, in the fall term, but would I bet the farm? that you know, this is a, an infallible assessment of the student's capacity? Absolutely not. It's just giving me kind of a, a little territory, a little yard that we're gonna start exploring it. So you know, here's a great place to start reading with students. 
so that I can get to know them better. Or, you know, I may notice in that preliminary assessment, oh, they're stronger in fiction versus nonfiction, for example, mm -hmm. or, or their comprehension, like, oh, literal understandings within the text, no problem. But when I start to talk beyond or about the text, well, that critical level or inferential level of thinking, not as strong, but hey, I've noticed that kind of trend across my classroom. What's so what? What's that telling me about my classroom instruction? I have to build in more conversations beyond and about the text, even in my interactive read aloud, in my shared reading, uh, when I'm getting kids to write in their reader's journal, right? I want to make sure that I'm giving them some prompts that are going to invoke those higher levels of thinking. And I'm not just asking them, well, what happened in yesterday's chapter, you know, and keeping kind of a, a very shallow level, skinny level of questioning happening in my classroom. But, but like I say, the, the formal assessments, kind of a necessary evil, but, but again, I don't want to inflate their, their results uh, too much because there's so much more rich assessment that I want to be doing day to day in that formative assessment that I'm doing in my classroom. You bring up a really good point when you talk about um, what teachers do next with the information they gain from those formal assessments, like taking the time to look at trends across classrooms and letting that inform your, your planning and your instruction. I think that's really important and I'm not always sure that that next step happens. I think we, we finished that last benchmark assessment, heave a huge sigh of relief input it on whatever platform we're required to input it in and then carry on as normal so i think um like as a resource teacher it really is important for me in my role to create those opportunities for those conversations to happen about okay we've got this information what are we going to do with it to improve students learning so i'm really glad you raised that point and i want to try and help teachers to alleviate that little bit of pressure around like the amount of content knowledge that, that's in some of our curricula. So it, it's, you know, oh my gosh, there's this pressure of I've got to get through all these units of study by by the end of the school year. And, and we're often testing, you know, some of those those curricular areas by by content knowledge. But when we have to start thinking bigger picture, like, well, if if Joe doesn't pick up, you know, a certain uh, like what are the parts of a tree this week, that, that's not the big picture problem. It's, it's more so am I developing Joe skills in being able to find that information and process that information when he needs it and when it's relevant. So, you know, helping teachers look beyond the, the minutia that, that we have often in our curricula and, and looking at bigger processes. So in literacy, you know, go back to the big three, the reading, the writing, the oral language. Right, and, and the more we empower kids in all three areas, the more successful they're going to be across the curriculum. I think that's an important reminder because as an elementary teacher, and again, middle years and high school too, more than once that um, formal reading assessment has left me feeling disappointed in my instruction or like I haven't done enough for a child. But I, I think as teachers, we need that reminder that we have done our very best to give them the skills that are going to help them move forward and be successful in the bigger picture and not to maybe put all the weight on that. It's a piece of useful information to help us plan our instruction and to help us better understand our students. But I know 
Um, it can also be hard for us as educators, right, to accept, oh, you know, my school division says this kid should be reading at a level 20 and they're reading at a level 15 and I've done something terribly wrong and I'm not doing enough. But I think keeping in mind that it's, it's one piece of what we're doing for children is an important reminder. Not to say that those aren't important, important pieces, but, but to remember that they're one piece. Yeah, and I think we have to understand the, the human side of, of those formal assessments as well. So if you happen to assess a student on a terrible day in their life, they're, they're, they're not going to, to show their, their true capacity. Or, and, and like we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, this idea that students' personal interest and background knowledge are going to trump level on a text. So we, we gave the example earlier of that, you know, sometimes students are going to exceed our expectations because they have high interest and high background knowledge. The opposite is also true. So sometimes on that formal assessment, they don't do well because they're not really into what we're doing. <laughs> you know, during that, or the text that we're giving them to read on this formal assessment isn't a big appeal. So they're kind of checking out or, or giving a half-hearted attempt or, or just trying to get to the end of the time so that they can get back to what they really wanted to be doing. And, and that's skewing results. So, you know, when that happens, I always tell teachers, well, yes, you're going to meet kids that, you know, surprise you in, in their formal assessments both ways. What, what's more reliable data? Well, what is the data, again, that you've been collecting day after day after day in your classroom? What, what is that body of evidence telling you about that student throughout the term and throughout the school year? That, that's much more reliable information than what happened one day reading one text. I think that's a really great point to conclude our conversation. Um, just putting those, those big formal assessments in the place they need to be in and using, you know, triangulating all of that other information to really give us a complete picture of the child. Um, I'm sure I speak for Leah as well when I say that we could sit here and talk about literacy all day with you because it is just such a fascinating and important topic regardless of what role you play in education. So thank you so much for answering our questions, bringing your huge wealth of knowledge to bear on this topic and just shedding some light on some controversial issues in education right now. We really appreciate it. And I know our listeners do too. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's my pleasure. And anytime you have any questions, you can contact me at Brandon University. And if our okay. listeners would like to reach out at all, Joe, is there somewhere where you'd like to share online? Where can people find you and learn more from you? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think I've shared my website. So you're, you're very welcome to post my website, which has a link to my email here at Brandon University. Or you can also get a hold of me at StouferJ, so S-T-O-U-F-F-E-R-J at BrandonU.ca. Thanks, Joe. We appreciate you doing this. Thank you so much for tuning in today. You can find more information about today's topic in the show notes. If you know another educator who'd enjoy this podcast, please share it with them. And give us some feedback too. We'd appreciate your rating and review in the app you're using to listen to this. Keep growing, learning, and taking care of yourself. The world needs educators like you.
Hey, have you heard about our Teacher Success Squad community? This community is for early career educators in their first five years of teaching. We meet via Zoom on the second Tuesday of each month to ask questions, share ideas, and get support. We've created a huge dashboard of resources based on questions and topic ideas from teachers in those first five years. If you're interested in learning more about what we do, visit kgeducation.ca slash success squad and feel free to reach out to us with a message or a direct message on social media and we'll set you up with a free community call so you can check out what we're doing. We'd love to have you there.